All right. Well, I'm going to title my sermon, The Return of the King. And if you are a Tolkien nerd, you know that that refers to the last volume of The Lord of the Rings. And the title refers to a king of a long, dried up line uh, who is the rightful heir, who returns to his own city and he's not really welcomed and he's not really received uh, and recognized as the true and rightful king. And I think it's an apt title because that is what is going on in large part in Matthew chapter 19 to 22. Jesus, for the first time in Matthew since he was a child, is returning to Jerusalem, the home of the king, the home of the heir of David. He's going there to take up his throne. And he knows what's going to happen as he goes up there. So this whole section, just to summarize the whole section before we zoom in on the particular scripture I'm going to look at. Jesus is the king returning to his kingdom, taking up his rightful throne. He is the son of David. And that's a title that means he's the one that was promised would be the heir of David and would reign on David's throne forever. The, 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 the phrase son of David is sprinkled all through this section and various people recognize. In fact, the two blind men recognize they, they don't have eyes to see literally, but they have the eyes to see spiritually that he is the proper heir of David. He sets, Jesus sets his face on this final showdown where he's going to Jerusalem to confront those uh, that should be doing what he wants them to do and are not. He ascends to the royal city, right? In, in the scriptures, whenever people go to Jerusalem, they go up. And Jesus is ascending to the royal city as the heir of David to take up his throne. He's coming, as we're going to see, to inspect his vineyard. Because he expects to receive fruit from the vineyard that belongs to his father. He's going to come and cleanse the temple. He's going to run out the thieves because they're not producing and rendering to him the fruit that he deserves. So there's all these themes gathered up as Jesus goes to Jerusalem. It's a major confrontation. And of course, spoilers, we know that he's going to be crucified. But that's a key part of his enthronement. And notice, too, that as Jesus progresses to Jerusalem, he has a particular band of followers that's unique. It is the blind, the lame, and children. Not a very impressive army. All right, these are the ones that he commands. These are the ones that he celebrates all along the way and welcomes. Again, it's the blind who recognize that Jesus is the son of David. It's the weak, the meek, who learn from him and are his disciples. One of my favorite Easter eggs, and I just have to do this, it's a deep cut, but I just have to reference this, is when he gets into the temple, it says they bring the lame and the blind to them and he heals them. And if you're steeped in scripture and you hear the lame and the blind and you're in Jerusalem, it should take you back to the book of 2 Samuel. I don't know if you remember this, but when David is enthroned over both kingdoms, he says, I'm going to take Jerusalem. It's going to be my capital. Does anybody remember what happens? He goes there and the inhabitants of Jerusalem say, these walls are so tough, the lame and the blind could defend them. And Jesus, or excuse me, David takes the city and he says, well, the lame and the blind took it. And here the lame and the blind come to him in the temple. He's the new David and he heals them. All right, it's a deep cut. There's so many of these. I could only sprinkle a few of them in there. All right, but he's got this collection of children that are uh, the ones who recognize, the ones going into the temple. The, the leaders in the temple are like, do you hear what these guys are saying? He said, yeah, out of the mouths of babes, God has ordained praise. 
So he's got this ragtag band, but that's his army because he's coming to Jerusalem to conquer, not with force, but by being crucified. And these children, these lame, these blind are the ones who are learning to conquer in the same way. All right. And if we have ears to hear, that's us. Notice, too, that Jesus has returned to Judah. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is in Judah as a baby, it's a dangerous territory because the the crooked king wants to kill him. And Jesus knows that when he goes back to to Judah, he's going to have the same problem. He knows that he's coming to Judah to die, to have this great confrontation. So as soon as he enters, leaves Galilee and enters Judah, which is the region around Jerusalem, the tensions escalate. It is here, by the way, that he teaches most stridently against the corruptions and the deceptions of great riches. All right, and that should clue us off to something. That it's Judah and the leaders in Judah, particularly the leaders in Jerusalem, who are the most corrupted by wealth. In fact, the temple... Remember, Jesus says, let your treasure be in heaven. That's a very pointed term because the word means treasury. And the temple had a treasury. In fact, the temple was a bank in those days. It held the deeds to land all around Judah. It had, we estimate, by some estimates, something like $1 billion in modern currency in assets. Okay, it was a bank. And Jesus begins, as he approaches Jerusalem, to have some pretty hard things to say about those who wield that particular wealth. That bank, the treasury there, was often used to gouge the poor of Judah out of their wealth. Notice the rich young man is one of the first encounters that he has in this section. And the rich young man was probably one of those. It says he was young. He was rich. He was probably on the Sanhedrin. He probably had a lot of land that had been claimed from those who had debts and couldn't pay their debts. And he probably made a lot of money off of that. And that's why Jesus' teaching to him is so pointed. It is probably, too, you should notice, a violation of the Jubilee laws in the Old Testament. All right? Debts were to be canceled after 49 years. And apparently in Jerusalem, those debts were not being canceled. But I want you to think with me, and this is an important theme that I, you'll hear me talk about this a lot. I'm going to come back to it several times tonight. But remember, Jesus is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. He's prophesying the destruction of the temple. He's prophesying the destruction of that bank. What will happen to property values in Judah when that happens? What will happen to those who have invested in this corrupt system in that treasury in Jerusalem when that happens? They'll lose it all. So when Jesus is telling the rich young man to sell all that he has and give to the poor so that he has treasure in heaven, he's saying, you're invested in the wrong thing. You need to get invested in something that will give you an eternal and a permanent reward. So 70 AD was the vindication of Jesus. This is one of the mysteries of the gospel that when Jesus rose from the dead, he did not appear to anybody but his followers. He didn't go to the leaders in Jerusalem. He didn't go to Pilate. He didn't go to anybody else and say, now I was right. Here's how he proved he was right. 70 AD happened. The Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. That's the vindication of Jesus to those who oppose him. It's a warning, and it's an invitation to repentance. And that is what is going on in much of this section as Jesus goes up. 
Another thing that I want to give a little bit of background to before we get into our text for tonight is remember when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he rides as the victorious king on a donkey. A donkey was, a, is, was what you rode when you had the victory. Okay, you rode a horse when you're going to war, but you rode a donkey when you're, when you're reigning. He rides this donkey into Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple like it belongs to him because it does. His authority is challenged there. And it is in that context that we have this strange little incident. On the next day when he goes, he's hungry and he goes to a fig tree. There's no figs on it. And he says, may you never bear fruit again. And it dries up. And his disciples are like, wow, Jesus, that is a really cool magic trick. Would you teach us to do that? And I think we often miss, because of the the miracle, we miss the symbolism of what Jesus was doing. Remember, we have lots of parables about a vineyard and an owner of a vineyard looking for fruit. We have God who uses repeated images of requiring fruit from his people. So this fig tree is a symbol of the temple. It's a symbol of his people. It's a symbol of the fruit that he expects to get from them. And there is none. So he brings judgment on it. And his disciples, again, I think they're distracted a little bit by the miracle. But what Jesus says next is very important. He says, well, I tell you, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. And it will be. And we often think, well, wow, man, I I need to have that faith. Yes. But that's a symbol, too. Notice what he says. This mountain. What mountain? It's the temple mount. Jesus is saying, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, the temple mount that should be bearing fruit and is not bearing fruit, be cast into the sea. And it will be. And guess what happened? Jesus prayed that and it was cast into the sea. The Gentile nations in scripture are symbolized by the sea. And they come and they destroy that temple. Does that make sense? These, These moments, this cursing of the fig tree and the speaking about this mountain being cast into the sea... Those are prophetic statements about what is to come. So again, we get that moment where Jesus is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. Don't get distracted by the miracle and miss the point that Jesus is trying to make. Finally, one more thing before we get into this. Parables. Jesus is going to give several parables in this section. And remember before that in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus began to teach in parables not because parables are a great way to illustrate things so people can remember them. He gave them specifically to confuse people who did not want to follow him. All right, remember in 13, he'd been teaching for a while. The Pharisees and others began to oppose him. And he began to teach in parables that were not clear what they meant. And he only explained them to his disciples in the house. When they came and said, Lord, teach us what this means. We don't know what this means. And he said, okay, let me explain it. And he explains it all the way through. So Jesus has only used parables in many ways to confuse his enemies, but to open them up to his disciples who come to him privately and ask for understanding. But now he gives parables that are more and more transparent. In fact, at the end of this section, the parable that we're going to discuss tonight, the parable that gets Jesus killed, it says at the end of it, did anybody notice it? And they understood that he was talking about them. And they decided it's time to kill this guy. So the parable that Jesus uses here at the end, he's being transparent. He's being clear. I will suggest that he's being a little bit like Nathan the prophet who told a story 
to rouse a sense of injustice in David and then turn the tables on him. And we'll look at how he does that. So listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. Now, in the scripture, this is actually all over the scripture. Isaiah 5, Ezekiel, there's all kinds of places in scripture where there's a parable of the people of God as some kind of planting, as some kind of agricultural product of God. And here, Jesus uses the image of a vineyard. And it's a business, and this should be noted, right? It's a business. And he puts a lot of investment in this. He plants the vineyard. That would have cost something. He puts a wall around it. That would have cost something. He puts a wine press in it. That would have cost something. And he builds a tower for security. He is completely invested in this thing succeeding. All right? And again, by the way, you're the leaders in Jerusalem. Oh, you like this parable. This is about business. This is about revenues and making money, and you're, you're, you're tuned into this. And he rented it out to vine growers and went on, a, went on a journey. Now, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his fruit. Perfectly just, right? This is his business. He's invested in it. They're going to get their part, but he's come to get what, he, what belongs to him. And the vine growers took his slaves, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Now, you're a business owner. You've started a business, you've left town, and this happens. What do you do? What's remarkable to me is that he doesn't immediately do something. All right? He doesn't immediately, you know, we'd be calling the authorities. I don't know, we'd be calling the lawyers and calling the authorities, and we'd be getting after this. He says, well, I'll send some more servants. All right? this, this, this vineyard owner is strange. He's patient. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, so more of them. And they did the same thing to them. Now, again, what would you do here? But afterward, he sent his son. Son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vineyard growers saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard. And killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? So again, these are men who know business, they know profits, they know these things, and he's I mean, they're you gotta feel with them. They are not they're not getting where the punchline is going. All right? What will he do? And they say, you gotta hear it. They say, they said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay, them, pay him the proceeds in the proper season. They're like, ugh. Right? And Jesus essentially says, you're those guys. You're the man. Jesus said to them, did you ever read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you that the kingdom, of, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit thereof. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it, were, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they understood that he was speaking to them. They finally got it. Oh, this is about us. And although they were seeking to seize him, they feared the crowds because they were regarding him to be a prophet. 
So again, this, this, this parable of the vineyard is the history of Israel. Right? It's the history of God's interactions with his people. He has invested in his people. He has given every resource to them. He has been patient with them. He has been gracious with them. He has given them all the resources they need to produce fruit. And what's the fruit? A life like God's life. A life of justice, a life of mercy, a life of blessing and serving the needy. He left them in charge and they consumed it for themselves. All right, next, the the final sermon that Jesus gives in Matthew is going to be the indictment of the leaders in Jerusalem and how they abused their position to enrich themselves, to keep themselves in power. He sends one messenger after another, one prophet after another, and they don't listen to any of the prophets. Consider, and again, the ridiculousness of an owner not immediately taking action, it displays the patience of God. The desire that they would come to their senses and repent. Ultimately, they plot to take over. They kill the son. And he will bring severe destruction on them and give the vineyard to those who will render its fruits. He's still looking for fruit. Jesus, all through the gospel, has said, I've come to help you bear fruit. You come to me. You be my disciple. I will help you bear the fruit I'm looking for, the kind of life that I'm looking for, with a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. The fruit is discipled living, learning from Jesus how to live the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, I'm going to take the vineyard away from you, and I'm going to give it to those who will bear its fruits. And that happened in 70 A.D., Again, notice the parable. What do they do? They kill the son. They cast him out of the city. Jesus was crucified outside of the city. And some 40 years later, because they continued to persist in their way, the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem. And God gave the kingdom to others, to a church of Jew and Gentile who will bear his fruit. Because the king, the rightful son, is the one who died for those who rebelled against him and is willing to forgive them. Now notice David in the story of David with Nathan. He, David gets all mad. I can't believe it. We, we need to kill this guy. And Nathan says, you're the man. And what does David do? He repents. That's precisely what I think Jesus is inviting them to do. He's inviting them to repent from their way, from the way they've abused their position. But they don't do it. Rather, they go ahead and fulfill the parable. They go ahead and plot to kill the heir, the son. And notice what it says, this last little touch in verse 46. Although they were seeking to seize him, they feared the crowds. They don't fear God. They fear the crowds. They fear the, the, the opinions of people, but they don't fear God and want to do what God does. So why were they judged? If we gather up what is said in these chapters about why they were judged, I think we can see a a few things. Number one, they had hard hearts. And Jesus applies this specifically to the way that they use Scripture. They use Scripture to find justifications for the things they want to do. Rather than using Scripture to find God's intention and try to enact those intentions regardless of what it costs them. All right, they have hard hearts. They're also judged because they don't bear fruit. Jesus comes saying, listen, unless you have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to be a part of what God is doing. 
And they have not borne that fruit. They have not borne the fruit that Jesus is inviting them to bear and that God has always intended that his people would bear. They unjustly extracted wealth from the poor through their practices of predatory lending. They tried to use God's temple for their ends, for their profit, for their position. Notice they say later on, if we don't deal with this thing, the Romans are going to come and take our place. It's not God's place. It's our place that we're using for our agenda. They domineered over the people of God. And Jesus says, it's not to be so among you. The greatest among you are to be those who come to serve, who lead for your best, not for their best. They use their positions of authority and power to use people rather than to serve them. And ultimately, and this is the key thing, they reject the cornerstone. They reject the rightful heir. They reject the returning king, the one about whom all the scriptures speak. At the end of this section, Jesus gets asked one question after another, and I love it. It's like you can sort of see all the different groups, and they come, and they're like, oh, oh, we'll catch them with this one. And they do it, and they're like, oh, wow. And another one tries, and another one tries, and another one tries. And at the end of it all, Jesus says, I have a question. And there should probably be a whole collective. You know, in Psalm 110, when David says, God said to my Lord, Jesus said, whose son is the Messiah? And they said, well, it's David's son. Then why does David call him Lord? Fathers don't call their sons Lord, yet he does. Why is that? And they're like, oh, we don't know. It's because Jesus is the heir of David, but he's David's Lord because he's God. And they haven't recognized him like the blind men on the way to Jerusalem recognized him. So to end with what Jesus, the gathering, those that gather around Jesus, again, children, the blind and the lame, the humble, those who humble themselves realizing, you know what? I don't have fruit in my life, but I want to bear fruit, and he can teach me. Jesus can teach me. Those who recognize that he's the son of David, he is there. He is the promised one, and he has come to fulfill all the promises of Scripture. Those who know they need his healing, those who know they're not going to figure things out unless he opens their eyes and ask him repeatedly to open their eyes. It's the students of Jesus who humble themselves and become like children and say, I don't know, but would you teach me? Those are the ones that he is leading in victory to Jerusalem. His victory is the cross. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but on the way to Jerusalem, uh, Zebedee's, uh, the, the, the mom of John and James, Zebedee's wife, comes and says, hey, Jesus, it's a good Jewish mother. Hey, Jesus, would you give my boys the best, the posh positions in your kingdom? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. By the way, this would have been his aunt. This is a family connection, right? Because they're cousins. You know, we're family. Give them the posh positions. And he says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink my cup? I say, oh, sure, we can drink your cup. The cup he's referring to is the passion. It's the cross. And he says, well, you will drink my cup, but you don't know what you're asking, and it's not for me to give that. Right? Well, we're that conquering army. 
We're the lame, we're the blind who have been given sight. And we are the ones who will drink his cup. Jesus says, you gotta t- if you're going to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Our Lord conquered by defeat. And he calls us to conquer by the same kind of defeat and weakness as we lay down our lives for one another and maybe even lay down our lives for those who hate us. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and we'll come to the Lord's table.